Lord, what a privilege to, to have your love lavished upon us, to have your grace given to us unconditionally. Lord, we're so undeserving, but freely you give and freely we receive. We thank you despite the challenges that 2018 brought many of us, that you are on your throne, that you're a mighty, sovereign, powerful God, and you're the name above all names and the one that we worship and look to for provision, for blessings, and for breakthrough. So bless this time as we humbly come before you. Remove ourselves from the equation, but let your Holy Spirit witness and minister to us that we may grow closer to you, more fond of your love, and in a deeper relationship with your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Sump, Mr. Sump, I'm Brian, by the way, Brian Sump. My friends all call me Sump, so feel free. Um, in fact, I had a high school coach that one time asked me, he said, Sump, what's your first name again? True story. So my name is Brian. I'm part of the uh, pastoral team. Uh, and um, so you probably think to yourself, Sump, what are you up to today? What do you got up your sleeve, man? You got some jokes? What's this all about, first love? Well, we must be, I got it. We're probably studying Romeo and Juliet, right? First love? Oh, no, 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 I got it. Adam and Eve, first love. No, it's, it's not any of that. You see, the message that's on my heart for you all this morning is a message that was on God's heart for me in 2018. And I heard some stories this morning just in passing of people who had some pretty challenging years this year. There was some, there was some deaths in family there were some drastic changes in health. You know, there were some, some upswings and downswings in careers, lost jobs, new jobs, new babies. What a blessing that is. And, and so hearing these stories, you know, I was reflecting in my own life. And, and this sermon, this title, was on my heart for you because it was on God's heart for me this year. You see, the story of my year, it was filled with some, some pretty hefty letdowns. I mean, I probably let some people down too, but man, I was let down and, and that hurt, um, certainly. And I think you guys can understand the hurt that you feel when somebody lets you down, somebody that you trust. This year for me was, was filled with some pretty harsh criticisms from people at times, things I didn't really want to hear. I mean, that's normal, right? You know, we really don't want to hear the criticisms that people have of us. But they were criticisms and, and things that I really, I didn't like that people said. It was, it was more like, being at a baseball game, you know, and, and the opposite team hits a home run and you catch the ball, and all you feel like is just chucking the ball back at the person that hit it, you know, like the wrong team hit the home run, you know, kind of that feeling that you have when you just want to throw it back in somebody else's face. But what I was left with was a pretty significant conviction. God imparted into my heart an astounding, deeply profound theologically mysterious truth and conviction. You know what it was? Lead with love. Lead with love. That's it. So what? Lead with love? God, I think you forgot the part about retaliation and defending myself and you know, standing up in righteous anger for what I believe is true and right. God said, no. Lead with love. I said, okay, well, I'm not really sure how to do that, but after, you know, a couple weeks of licking my wounds and dragging my feet and uh, picking my head up a little bit, that, that, that was my one word. If you guys have been studying this devotional, this four-day devotional, it's been recommended several times by Scott and other leaders, um, I think you should have had it emailed to you. I really encourage you to do that. It's very short. It's four days. 
The goal of that is to try to pluck out one word, or in this case, for my year, one phrase that God will use to lead you through 2019 to be prosperous and effective and to grow deeper in relationship with him. So this was my one word or one phrase. Now, throughout the New Testament, we, we see many occurrences that teach us about the importance and the impact of love. In fact, it says in the New Testament that, that God is, uh, his nature and his being is actually love. It says God is love. It's kind of hard to get your mind around that. In 1 John 4, 8, it says anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. A few verses later in 1 John 4, 16, it says, anyone who lives in love lives in the Lord, and the Lord lives in them. So you start to see this marriage, this union of, of God and his nature of love, and us as his creation, and his desire for us to be filled with and to express his love to others. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And in his first letter to the church at Corinth, he gave it very straight and narrow to us on what priority love should have in our lives. And he said in 1 Corinthians 14.1, he said, let love be your highest goal. Let love be your highest goal. Not anything else. And it just so happens that we are transitioning into 2019. Pretty good time to set some goals right, for most of us, resolutions and things. Even if you're not a resolution person, if you're in the workplace and you're managing or overseeing a business, you're probably setting forth your goals and budgets for 2019. If you're, if you're having relationship issues, you're probably thinking about, okay, what's our goal, honey, for our relationship this next year? If you're single, you're thinking, God, is there somebody for me in relationship next year? You might be wondering for your children, is this the year when they actually have breakthrough and decide what are they gonna do with their lives? So you're planning in some way, somehow, for 2019. Paul says, let love be your highest goal. So when you, when I took this scripture and I applied this, this, this phrase, this well-known phrase that's, that's usually accustomed to being tied to like business success stories or somebody's relationship success story, and that phrase is, start with the end in mind. Okay, start with the end in mind. And when I took that and I, and I blended it with 14.1 in, in 1 Corinthians, it says, let love be your highest goal. It became really clear and painfully and perfectly simple to me that, that we should love as an initiative, not as a reaction or a last resort. See, if love is your highest goal and you're starting with the end in mind, then we should be starting with love. Because think about it. How often... After an argument or a difficult situation or, or a tragedy in life, do we, do we end up, do we default to love? How often do we end up there? But how often, probably far less often, do we actually start with love as an initiative? And I, I understand that that's not a very easy thing to do. And I think the reason is, is because when you start by initiating love and you throw yourself out there, it's natural to feel like you, you want to have some immediate results and some immediate impact. And it's natural to feel like you want to have that abundant favor and that favorable outcome. But truly, that's not often how it ends up. 
I can tell you from experience, a lot of times you're going to end up feeling hung out to dry. You're going to feel underappreciated. You're going to feel vulnerable. Guys, you may feel a little soft. It's a thing. And that's, that's what naturally happens because, you know, I've learned that some people don't want to be loved or they don't know how to be loved. They had a, a parent or a grandparent or a teacher who pounded them and abused them verbally their entire lives and they don't understand how to receive love. I think some of us don't understand how to receive love from the Father either. And, you know, many aren't going to reciprocate. They're not going to give back the same measure of love that you give how many of us could repay Jesus for the work that he did on the cross? Can't, ever. Can't ever repay it. Imagine how he felt putting himself out there, putting his life on the line out of love for us. And that's the model that was set. Now, I think statistically, it might actually be easier for you and I to achieve our, like our physical goals, our New Year's resolutions, than to love the way that Christ called us to love. You might have better odds at getting a raise or a promotion at your job than loving somebody unconditionally. That is to say, loving without anything expected in return. You might be able to achieve, you know, putting down the cigarettes and quitting smoking far more easily than heaping a compliment upon your enemy. It might be easier for you to lose 30 or 40 pounds of weight than to stop yelling at somebody while driving in your car for one week. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I wrote the book on getting mad at other drivers. I wrote the book, and in fact, I have so many Seinfeld episodes about bad drivers and those numbskulls that clog the arteries of our perfectly good roadways in this beautiful city. I mean, I could, I could go on for a year. I think they need to hire me to write some of those episodes. You know, slow in the left lane, didn't use turn signal, cut me off, zipper effect, merge late, all those things. And I got it all right here. It's all figured out. <laughs> but uh, I think I'll just start by not yelling at the flag football refs, and then I'll graduate into not yelling at other drivers. <clears throat> There's a lot of actions that we default to other than love. And I think you're going to relate with some of these. You know, things like blaming other people. It's not my fault. You did this to yourself. You're the reason we're getting divorced. It's you, not me. It's John Elway and Vance Joseph's fault that the stinking Broncos are so stinky. I just wish those two guys would ride off in the sunset together, wave them farewell. That's just me. Amen. There's 22 other guys involved, but you know. What about ignoring? I'm just going to ignore him or her, and if, if I don't acknowledge them, then I won't have to face or confront the issues that we're having right now. Yeah, that's called passive-aggressive communication. And I'm pretty sure that doesn't fall under the fruits of the Spirit in the New Testament. What about, what about anger? I hate that bitter woman. Thought I was going to say something else, didn't you? She irks me. You know what? He drives me absolutely bananas, and I cannot stand him. It's because we're fallen. Man has fallen. We chose to disobey God. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And since the day you were born and I was born, the thing that made most sense to us was to feed our flesh by filling a need or a want. 
It's called sin. It's a byproduct of choosing to disobey God. So then, you take all that, and then you, you mix into this whole mess the fact that some of us are insecure, and we're really in need of some validation right now. Well, let's face it, all of us are insecure, aren't we? In some way? Oh, I, absolutely, I am too. Now, I got this little spot on the top of my head where my hair just doesn't ever want to lay down straight. Sounds like a big deal to you, right? But I am one bad hair day from waking up looking like alfalfa from the little rascals. Okay? You know, think about a skinny, long face, ears stick out. That's not a good day. Let me tell you some other things that you probably don't know about me. In sixth grade, I was punched in the mouth by a girl because she didn't know I wasn't a girl. True story. I had long hair, braces. In fact, she punched me so hard, my lip stuck to my braces. I had to peel my lip off like this. It stuck out like this for a week. Her name was Carla West, if you ever run into her. <laughs> in high school, we had black velvet paisley wallpaper on the walls. In high school, when I graduated in 1999, and we had ugly olive green carpet. Thinking, great, Mom. We got fuzzy caterpillars crawling up the wall, and any chance I had at getting a quality date, just molted a cocoon and flew away. <laughs> this is awesome. Thanks, Mom. Insecurities. I entered college to play football at 153 pounds, eighth on the depth chart, smallest guy on the squad. And there was exactly one pair of small football pants in the equipment room. And guess who got them? I did. Took me 10 minutes to get them off, uh, on, 12 minutes to get them off, and I never want to feel what I felt ever again. <laughs> it's called motivation to hit the weight room. I've got insecurities, and please, let's just be honest here. Don't act like you don't have them too. I know what they are. Hair, nose, hips, toes, your laugh, your home, your job, your clothes, all of those things, yeah? Some of you were just ignoring me. You didn't even notice that I just rhymed. You're back to that ignoring thing, that default action. Let's face it, sometimes and most of the time, you don't feel loved. You don't. And how easy is it to love somebody else when you don't feel loved yourself? There's a guy named Abraham Maslow. He developed a thing called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Some of you may have heard of this. And Maslow said, after umpteen years of studying, he said there are, there are five sort of categories of life, of needs that a person must have met for them to get at the, the top level of the pyramid, which is the optimal place in life. And those things are food, shelter, and warmth, safety, and security. And there's your building blocks, by the way. Friends and intimate relationships recognition and respect. And then once you get to that top ladder, you start having fulfillment, achievement in life, creativity, self-expression, self-evaluation, self-realization. So Maslow talked about these five things and it makes perfect sense. Because it's hard to love when you are just worried about getting your basic needs met. And I know some of you are just trying to put food on the table right now. I know that some of you are having trouble making rent. You're between jobs, and it's really hard. 
That's why Jesus was so clear. And he said, rely on me for your needs. Go to Matthew 6 and read for a while. Rely on me for your needs. What I want you to worry about is one thing. I want you to worry about who needs my love. And I'll tell you this, that waiting for the feeling of love to manifest itself before you show love, good luck with that. It's a wild goose chase. I've been down that road. I've been on that hunt before. You know, and, and I think that the, the two sort of, they sort of work off of each other. What I mean by that is, is if you feel love, and most of the time, by the way, when you feel love, it's probably in the category of like that brotherly friendship type love or that romantic love, okay? Most of the time what you feel, but what I'm talking about is agape love, that unconditional love. So here's what I'm saying. If, if you feel it, show it. If you feel it, don't ignore it. Let somebody else get a piece of that love that you feel. But if you don't, if you don't feel it, show it anyway. Because what's going to happen if you do that is that something special is going to happen inside your heart and in your mind. And it's going to take you to that place of introspect, that place of fulfillment. You're going to have a fulfillment that you will not get filled any other way in your life. And wherever you are on that hierarchy of needs, guess what you do? You just leapfrog, boop, right up to the top. Because that's that element of fulfillment and achievement in life that we try to have met from everything else, career, status, income, relationship, children. But you know what? You can meet it by showing love even when you don't feel it. It's called unconditional love. Now, a select few of you I know are really, really good at portraying on the outside like you've got everything together. But on the inside, you are riddled with guilt, with shame, affliction, addiction, lies that you're not good enough, that you'll never be good enough, fears, doubts, memories of your failures. But on the outside, it's all good. Oh yeah, you're a master of fake it till you make it. I know it, because I do it too. Some of you are really good at masking the feelings that you really have on the inside with your words and your superficial actions. But to love the way that Christ called us to love, words aren't enough. They're not enough. Well, how do you know that, Brian? Well, I, I didn't say it. A guy named Paul did, the Apostle Paul. We're going to be spending most of the time today in 1 Corinthians 13. We'll start with verse 1. Here's what Paul said. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbals. What he's saying is if you speak with the most beautiful, communicative, eloquent style of speak, and he's saying like the, the, the way that angels communicate. Have you ever thought about how angels communicate? I mean, I can't hear them. I don't know if you can. Usually, I mean, usually there's like an impartation on your heart, but how do they communicate? It's got to be pretty powerful how they communicate. And he's saying if you communicate in the most beautiful manner, none of that matters. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like pots and pans in the kitchen. It sounds like a bad percussionist, not like Steve Walker, but you know, like the bad kind. Banging on stuff and crashing and clanging. I thought something I, 
I found something pretty funny this, this Christmas. And that is that, have you ever paid attention to like the reaction and faces of people when they open a gift that they really didn't want? You ever really paid attention to that? It's pretty, pretty funny and pretty fascinating. In fact, there's an etiquette teacher in the UK named uh, Micah Meyer, and she actually teaches people how to do that the right way so that you avoid that like horrific incident of some nasty face or reaction of, of a gift that you received that you didn't want. And, and they're, they're, they're kind of interesting. I'll share them. There's five of them. I'll share them with you to make a point here real quickly, but check this out. She says, number one, she says, always show gratefulness no matter what kind excuse me, no matter what you think of the gift, the fact that someone got you something shows kindness, which should always be appreciated. Makes sense, right? It's the thought that counts. That's what she's trying to say there. Okay, fair enough, Micah. That's good. Number two, if the person who gave you the gift is watching you open it, be sure you don't use negative facial expression or words. Brilliant. She says that is a sure way to hurt someone's feelings and spoil the festive spirit for the rest of the day. Be sure to always muster a smile and always say thank you. You know what the guy looks like that tries to do that. He's like, he's opening his box and he's like, uh-huh, thank you. It's like Dana Carvey from Saturday Night Live or something. Number three, she said, choose your wording carefully and think before you speak. While you don't want to lie and say you love something when you don't, she says, never say but. I think what she means is, you know, like they give you stuff for your bathroom and you open it up, you say, this is so nice, but I don't have a bathtub in my house. Or thank you so much for the blender, but I already have one, right? So she says, don't say but. Fine, those all make sense. Here's where it gets good. Number four, if you know your mother-in-law is extremely sensitive, is there a mother-in-law that ever existed that is not a little bit sensitive? I love my mother-in-law. She's one of the most generous, loving people in the world, but there's always that little bit. She says, if you know your mother-in-law is extremely sensitive and would be very offended, it may not be worth the hurt or tension you may cause. Sometimes you may choose your battles wisely. Here's what I want to say to Micah. When it comes to in-laws, you better always choose your battles wisely, okay? Now, here's the fifth one. I'm going to make a point with all this, but I thought you might want to know this for next Christmas. Number five, she said, always write a thank you letter no matter how you feel about the gift. And this one kills me. Because if I write a thank you letter for a gift I didn't really like, doesn't that give the person absolute permission next year to get me the same kind of gift? Do you ever struggle with that? Here's the point. While I'm sitting here sulking about opening a gift that I didn't ask for, and I'm probably never going to use, there's somebody sitting alone at an orphanage or a senior living facility that wishes that they, they would give anything just to have somebody to have a genuine, meaningful conversation with. Words that matter to them. Not superficial words. Not masked words that are insensitive and disingenuous. So I would ask you, who's the person that you're trying to get through in your life right now to? Is it a spouse or a neighbor or a new employee? Because somebody that you're witnessing to right now needs to know from you that they are loved. And when you beat them over the head with every ounce of logic and reason that you have, but they don't know that you love them, I want to tell you what they hear. And just like your parents, when you want them to stop, they don't actually stop, right? They keep going. 
But here's what I'm trying to say. Parents, listen. Anybody that you're witnessing to right now, if, you, if, you're, if you're trying to help somebody in life and you don't feel like they're being helped and they're not listening, I would encourage you to just ask yourself, do they know I love them? Do they genuinely know I love them, like unconditionally and deeply? No. And, and I would just encourage you that, that if, if you have to keep loving the person through that breakthrough. And I'll tell you from personal experience because I have a little, I have a young lady that I inherited custody of when I was 25 years old and she was 14. And she was bipolar. And she committed suicide two years ago. And when she would make bad decisions and poor choices, you know what my default action was? It was to withdraw. Because my logical brain could not get itself around the manifestation of whatever it was that she was creating in that moment. And I could not understand or reason with why she would make those decisions the way she made them. And so if, are you approaching a relationship or a job or maybe even your church right now with an attitude of, of what we call with them, what's in it for me? Are you approaching somebody in your life that way right now? Because if you are, what would happen if you changed that to whiffy? What's in it for you? Just like Jill talked about this morning, what a cool idea to help somebody achieve their New Year's resolution as part of yours. In fact, in our organization, we're gonna create what we call goal boards this New Year. Then we're gonna have every team member in our organization create like this little collage of goals that they have in life, and we're gonna celebrate letting them and helping them cross those off one by one. I didn't think of that idea, but it's a, it's a brilliant idea. And I wanna to refer to the story of the rich young ruler. It's in Mark 10, 21, and I think many of you are familiar with this, but I wanna point out something that you may never have caught in this story. So here, Jesus encounters this rich young ruler. Jesus tells him to go and sell everything he has and give it to the poor. And then he says, then he will receive the treasure in heaven. And then Jesus says to him, come follow me. But you know what you probably missed? And you know what I missed? Was right before that, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Do you see what happened? Do you see the pattern? It says Jesus focused on his love for the man and then he commanded him what to do. And then he told him to follow him. See, there's a pattern there I think we all need to pay a little bit of attention to. And I've learned that people aren't going to care much about this life or you in this life other than did you love them? Were they loved by you? And that's what people will remember. So to love the way that we're called to love, knowledge and faith, they're not enough either. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, the next verse, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all the mysteries of life and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move a mountain, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. He says, I'm nothing. Some of us are pretty confident people. Some of us, you know, we're, we're pretty smart. In fact, some of us can actually finish your sentence before you do. You know those kind of people, right? I'm one of those. There are some of us who have no problem achieving goals in life. We're pretty driven folks. The problem is sometimes we trample over other people to achieve our goals. 
Some of you are pretty pragmatic or practical people. It's usually men, but I know some women too. You know how it is. You want to be blunt. You want to be transparent and forthcoming with people, but you just end up hurting them in the end. For men, I'll talk to you for a minute. It's pretty uncomfortable for us to love sometimes, isn't it? It's pretty uncomfortable because by nature, we're strong and logical human beings. We're not feely and emotional. We're not very good at that. I know some guys that are, but most of us aren't. And I'll tell you that while you may feel like you validate people's emotions or their behaviors by loving them when they don't make good choices, that's not what we're called to do. And I know, again, the story about my sister, but I want to tell you another story that happened to me this year. Amidst all this tumult in my life, I had another revelation that was about my marriage. And this has been ongoing for a couple of years, and I'm sure Jill wouldn't mind me sharing this, because ultimately, she's the benefactor. But for seven years, I was married to this beautiful woman. And at the time that we were dating and that I had this conviction that I, that I was, had the green light to marry this woman, God gave me a word and a conviction and sort of a covenant. He said, Brian, she is yours, but you are to love her and honor her and respect her. Now, while those might seem like very traditional vows that you would say at the altar, the key to that was that this woman is a pretty giving woman and she's pretty positive and she can easily be taken advantage of. So for seven years of my life, I made a mistake of thinking that what she logically would want is a strong man who's not vulnerable and who is always on. It's just like in the movies. I mean, these, these hero guys, this is what they are. These, you know, big beefed up dudes, you know, handsome guys, and the, the, the hero. They don't show the vulnerability part in movies very often. So that's what I was, and that's what I had. And, and you know what I needed in the end? I actually needed permission from her. I needed that permission to say, you know what, Brian? It's okay to love me like Christ. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to let down your guard. And I thank God that she gave me that permission. And you know what, guys? I'm going to talk to you for another second here. I'm going to tell you the same thing. I give you permission. I give you permission to love your wife without strength, without a guard, without mightiness and fortitude, just pure, gentle, vulnerable love. I give you permission. God gives you permission to do that. And I'm so thankful that he did that for me. I want to talk about another man in the scriptures because going back to this verse here in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, and uh, we're now in 2, Paul says, he talks about prophecy and mysteries and knowledge. There's some guys that did some pretty wild stuff in the Bible. Like Simon the sorcerer, if you remember him. This was a guy that summoned supernatural powers that were not the powers of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. He did like magical and magnificent works, dare I say miracles, but it was not in the name of Christ. And look what happens. He actually approaches the apostle Peter and he says to him, I want that. I want, what you, I want the power that you have. He says, in fact, in fact, I will even buy it. How much? And look what Peter says back to him. He says, 
your heart is not right before God. In other words, nor can God, nor can I give you this spirit. Spirit's about heart. It's about the purity of love for Jesus Christ the Savior. And going into the book of James, and we'll probably hit this in the next few weeks, but James says something he's coined famously for saying, that faith without works is dead. Faith without action is dead. And you know what? I think it's safe to say, based on what we've learned today, that faith without love is dead. Because what Paul's saying here is is that you can have faith and you can have prophecy and you can have knowledge and all these things. It doesn't matter if you don't have love for the Savior and love for one another. How many of you have ever been to a car show of any kind? Raise your hand. I know there's some car buffs in here, uh, Joe Bowles. Oh, Joe, you're here today, I know. Phil Voss, there's some car lovers in here. I want to know if you've ever ran across this guy, okay? He's like the 67 Chevelle or Nova guy with the engine poking up, protruding up through the hood with like shiny chrome stuff everywhere, right? And he's standing there next to his car the entire day. He doesn't even look at anybody else's car. He just stands there. And you walk up to him, you look at his car, he says, pretty sweet, huh, bro? You're like, yeah, it's nice, man. He goes, yeah, it's a V8 Hemi, four-barrel carburetors, twin-screw superchargers, 200 shot of nitrous. You're like, wow, congrats. That's pretty impressive, man. He goes, yeah, runs nine seconds in the quarter mile. Really? Dude, that's, that's awesome, man. Congratulations. I bet you're really proud of that. Yeah. And then you say, man, I'd, I'd love to take a ride in it. And he puts his head down and he says, yeah, but got a fuel pump problem. She doesn't run. <laughs> and you know what I feel like saying to that guy is, dude, you don't have a race car. You got a show pony, right? You got a show pony. And it looks great. And I'm sure when it's running right, it, it's pretty awesome. But here's my point. There's no fuel for the car. There's nothing to propel the race car. In the same vein, if there's no fuel, there's no love behind your faith, then there's no fuel to propel your faith. That's what Paul's saying. And to love the way that we're called to love, gifts and sacrifices, they're not enough either. Verse three, Paul says, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Nuns and monks commit themselves to isolation their entire lives and celibacy to become and feel more closer to Christ. There are self-mutilating Catholics that cause tremendous pain upon themselves so that they can feel more like Christ felt. I got a newsflash for all those people. I'm not going to get in the way. If God tells those people to do that, I don't want to be the one to stand in the way of that. But I have a newsflash for those people. That's not the way that you get closer to Christ and feel more like Christ. But love is. Love is. Billionaire philanthropists give more in their lifetime than probably this entire room combined will give. But it doesn't mean a dang thing eternally for them. See, righteous acts don't make a person any more righteous if they're absent of love. The love that fuels faith is the love of Jesus Christ. So I want to get practical for just a brief moment. And say, Brian, this is all fine and dandy, but how, how, do we, how do we actually do this? Where do we start? And so here's what I, I want to show you. To, to learn to lead with love, the, the word that God gave me, 
It starts with, first of all, a conviction and a realization. And you can hear, you can see, but until the neurons in your brain start to consciously connect with each other with a, a conviction and a realization of the love of God, it's really hard to get there. See, Paul caps off his brilliant syllabus on love in chapter 13 by saying, in 13, 13, the very last verse of 13, he says, and these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But he says, again, the greatest of these is love. At some point, you must realize there is no virtue more godly and precious than love. So once you have this conviction, then you gotta get a proper perspective. You gotta get a proper perspective. And I think that the Gospel of John in 1335 does a fantastic job of documenting Jesus when he said, the mark of a disciple, you and me, followers of Jesus, the mark of a disciple is love. That's what defines a disciple. He doesn't say there that you have to have the innate ability to memorize every scripture in the Bible. And he doesn't say that you have to have a master's degree in theology or hermeneutics or apologetics or any of that kind of stuff. Sometimes we forget that. So after you have a conviction and a proper perspective, all that's left is a choice. You have a choice, and the choice is to accept Christ's love through which he offers freely and frees us from the, the failures and the imperfections that we have made in our lives. And you have a choice, and if you've never made that choice, you need to do it. And, it, and it's really important that you say it here and in your mind, but it's really helpful if you say it out loud. You say, you know, God, I do accept this love, and I do accept that I have failed you and other people, many other people in my life, and I want to accept this gift of grace from you through the work that you did on the cross. And so I want to read the middle section of 1 Corinthians 13 real quickly, and I'm going to create a challenge to you. It says this, love is patient, love is kind. And it, does, and it goes on to say many things about it does not envy, it does not boast, and so on and so forth. And it finishes with love never fails. And so what I've done is, on your notes, I've put this together. If you're like me and you're cerebral, you, you, it helps to categorize things. And I wanted to put this into a way that you could really see what this is really saying. And so it's really simple here. It says, love is patient and kind. And then it says, love is not envious, boastful, proud, dishonorable, self-seeking, easily angered, or begrudging. And then it gets to the action side, the verb side. It says, love does rejoice with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And it says, love does not delight in evil or fail. And so, if this principle of the 80-20 rule, if you've ever, you know, if you've ever studied or talked about this principle. If this, if this principle of the 80-20 rule is really true, what might happen if you spent 80% of your effort on maybe the two things that you know you're really good at when it comes to love? And in fact, I wonder if you were to circle those two things, what would they be? I circled mine. The two things that you think that you're really good at, or maybe that you're really good at not doing, what would those be? And then you circle two things that you really need to work on. 20% of your time lifting up those two things. What would happen? In John 21, Jesus asked Peter three times, if you love me. He said, do you love me? Three times. And Peter responded three times. He said, yes, Lord, I love you. And then Peter, excuse me, and then uh, Jesus said to Peter, he said, okay, go and take care of my people. See, it's important for you to know that 
Woven into your DNA and my DNA is the ability to love. But woven into our sin is an incapacity to love. And so what we have to do is we have to learn how to love and be loved by seeking God's love through his spirit, by believing the scriptures are true, and by praying that those lies would stop about who you are in the eyes of Jesus. And so when you really grasp that you are absolutely loved fully and completely, 100% of the time, when you grasp that, your insecurities start to go away. They start to fade away. And once your insecurities fade away, then you can really focus on how to love other people. A true love for Jesus produces a true love for people. So in 2019, perhaps you too will choose first to love. Let's pray. Father, I don't think we will ever fully understand the magnitude of your love until we stand before you in heaven. But your word says you're preparing a place for us who believe in your son Jesus Christ even right now as we speak. But it takes a step forward in faith to say, yes, I do love you, Jesus. I do accept your grace and mercy and the free gift you've given me. And I do accept the freedom from the bondage of sin and the imperfection that has come from my life. But I receive this love, and Lord, it is my deepest desire that this church, that this community, that this body of believers across the world would begin to understand that your love is always present, it's always enough, and that we begin to turn our sights on the verb, the unconditional love that fuels our faith, that fuels our gifts and our sacrifices, that fuels our words of sincerity and genuineness. So let your spirit guide us in these ways. Let us enter into 2019 with an unwavering resolve to focus on the purity and the blessing of your love and the many gifts that we have in this life that we take for granted. We thank you for a fresh start in this new year. We thank you for a fresh start at life through the redemption power of the cross. We praise you and we love you, Lord. We give you all the glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.